Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. It's good to see you today. If you're a guest, we are doing a series called True and Better. Try to help us how to understand that the entire Bible is about Jesus, that he's the hero of every story, and that when we're reading the Bible, you don't want to be looking for yourself, you want to be looking for him. And so, the first week we saw true and better Adam, last week true and better Noah, this week true and better Abraham. And so, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, and then 17 through 19, and then I'll pray and we'll get to it. Follow along with me. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. God, I pray that you will uh, see fit in your grace and in your mercy to just use someone as insignificant as me to speak holy, sacred, eternal truths over this church, over this body, over every person in this room. God, I pray today that you would encourage hearts. I pray today that you would speak deeply to our souls. I pray today that you would change us on the spot, that you would lead us to involuntary worship on the spot, that Jesus would be made much of on the spot today. God, would you teach us your word through your spirit, by your grace, and we'll thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So a lot of you guys know I grew up around Canton, Ohio. Canton, Ohio. Does anyone know the only thing that you would know about Canton, Ohio? What's the one thing that you would know? Football Hall of Fame. Yeah, I'm in, a, I'm in a state that reveres football, so of course everyone goes, yeah, Football Hall of Fame. So I've been to the Football Hall of Fame lots and lots of times, um, and, and the sense that you get when you walk into the Football Hall of Fame is that I am not like any of these people, right? These people are massive. These people have done incredible athletic feats. These people have their heads bronzed and put in a room full of bronzed heads, right? I, that would never happen to me. It's super weird. Uh, I don't really understand. But these people have done things that I wouldn't be able to do. So growing up around Canton, I have heard multiple pastors uh, refer to the Football Hall of Fame when teaching Hebrews chapter 11. And they said, the Football Hall of Fame is like the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And the sense that you got was that just like those people who were in the Football Hall of Fame, you're not like them. These people who are in the Hall of Faith, you're not like them either. They are giants of the faith. They are heroes of the faith. They are significant, and God used them deeply, and God spoke to them specifically, and that's not like you, so you should aspire to be like them. Here's the problem. The problem is that the book of Hebrews is all about comparing Jesus to something else so that you'll know that he's greater than everything else. Jesus is the hero of the story, and when we misunderstand the framework, we'll start to read the Bible, and we'll start to make people heroes that God doesn't make heroes, and we'll start to say they're the standard when they're not the standard, and we'll start to say they're different than us when they aren't different than us. These are just people who 
loved God, who obeyed God, who sought to listen to God, who sought to worship God, who tried to make much of Jesus with what they understood of Jesus, and God used them in significant ways. And the reason that he puts them in the hall of faith, as it were, is not to say they're different than you, but to say it's the same God. It's the same God who did this for them. He, he can do that. He can do that for you. Now, one of the giants of the hall of faith, and we'll stop calling it that at this point, um, is a guy by the name of Abraham. And he actually shows up for not one, but two different things. It's like having two hall of fame careers, right? Going to two different teams, winning Super Bowls with two different teams, and, and being off the charts with two different teams. And, uh, and so what I want to do today is I want to... I want to just kind of tell you those two stories. And then I want to tell you how and why I think that Jesus is the actual hero of Abraham's story. And Jesus is the actual hero of Abraham's story. Now, if you're taking notes, you can just jot down Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 22. And those are going to be the references that are going to connect you to the text that we just read in Hebrews chapter 11. So here's how were introduced to Abraham. Abraham is living with his dad, not in the way that some of you are living with your mom, okay? Completely different, all right? Not in the basement. I'm just kidding. You just seem a little uptight to me today. Are you good? There's nothing wrong with living with your mom, necessarily, okay? You should love your mom anyways. Are we good today? Are you sure? <laughs> all right. That wasn't an overwhelming response. Um, yeah, he's living with his dad, and, uh, and God comes to Abraham and says, Abe, I want you to, to move. Now, the thing that you need to understand about moving is that uh, this wasn't a commuter society the way that, that ours is. And everything that Abraham knew was with his dad, and everything that Abraham was was with his dad. His inheritance was connected to his dad. His identity was connected to his dad. His Peace of mind was connected to his dad. In fact, when Abraham walked down the road, they didn't say, oh, there's Abraham. They said, oh, that's the son of. And so God comes to Abraham. He says, Abe, I want, I want you to leave all of that, and I want you to move. And Abraham says, absolutely. And he pulls out his GPS, and he goes, where are we going? <laughs> right? And God says, um, I just said that I want you to move. I just said that I want you to leave. And, uh, and I'll let you know when we get there, all right? Now, there's nothing worse than being in a car with somebody who will only give you the next turn, right? Have you ever been with somebody like, hey, which direction should I go? Oh, just take a left right here. No, I, yeah, thank you. Uh, what, what's after that? I, I'll let you know. No, seriously, let me know right now. <laughs> like, I'm a grown adult. Like, tell me where we are going. God doesn't even give him. He says, when you're, when you're supposed to take a left turn, I'll let you know. And so literally every step for Abraham is like, you know, he's doing this anxious jig of what, what are you going to do? How are you going to lead me? What? And the wonderful thing about Abraham's story is that God says, here's the thing. Uh, I'm not going to tell you where you're going to go, but I, I am going to tell you what the result is. Uh, and he pulls Abraham aside and he, and he takes him out, and he shows him the stars, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a nation. Uh, I, I need you to trust me right here and right now, and if you'll trust me, and if you'll let me navigate your life, and if you'll leave all of the things that you knew, I'm going to make everybody who is against you, I'm going to be against them. And everybody who's for you, I'm going to be for them. And I'm going to bless you, 
and I'm going to use you, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Abe, will you trust me? And Abraham, what does he do? He trusts. He has faith. He believes God. He takes God at his word, and he puts his life in the hands of God and says, God, do with me whatever you will. Now listen, does that make God, Abraham a theological faith giant? No, it doesn't. It makes him just like you and I when we come and we say, God, I'm a sinner. and I need a savior. And I'm putting my entire life in your hands. You are not only the navigator, you're the driver. I'm in the back seat. I won't be a back seat driver. I just want to bring you glory. I just want to love you. I just want to trust you. I just want to follow you. I give my life to you. That's what Abraham does. And God says, listen, if you'll do this, Abraham, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless your socks off. Right? And so in faith, Abraham steps out. Now, A lot of us, we like to think that when God asks us to do something significant, that's the end of the story. I'm over that. All right. Now, now the rest. This is the beginning of the story. It's just the beginning of the story. I I think that if Abraham had uh, said to God, God, look, man, I just need you to bless me where I am. Do you think that God would have done that? No. Abraham had to obey God. He had to leave, you had to step out of faith, and, and that was the beginning. Listen to me. Some of you, you are losing an argument away from the blessing of God. You are leaving where you are away from the blessing of God. For some of us, the beginning of blessing is the next step. And the next step isn't the last step, it's just the first step, it's just the beginning. But God blesses Abraham uh, because he called Abraham, and Abraham said, All right. And I'll go, I'll go, and I'll trust you, and, uh, and you'll do with me whatever you want. And it's a wonderful, it's a beautiful story. Um, in Genesis chapter 22, a little bit of backstory here. In order to have a nation, to be the father of a nation, you have to be able to do what? Not a trick question. You got to be able to make babies. All right? You got to be able to make babies. And, uh, and Abraham and his wife Sarah... Uh, not for lack of trying, are having a hard time making babies. And they have left father and mother. They have left identity. They have left comfort. They have left peace of mind. They have left inheritance. And they are out following God. And they say, okay, I'm going to do the math here. In order for us to have a nation, we got to at least have one. And so let's look at the calendar. Let's, let's do this right. Let's, let's get to it. And month after month, year after year, and decade after decade, Sarah can't get pregnant. And the Bible lets us know that around the time that Abraham is about 100 years old and his wife's about 90 years old. Now, I'm not an OBGYN doc, okay? But as far as I understand, that is slightly past childbearing age. Slightly. Slightly past. (laughs) God comes to Abraham and says, Abe, by the way, Good job trusting me, man. And Abe says, yeah, no problem. Here's the thing. Uh, you told me I was going to be the father of a nation, and my wife cannot get pregnant, and we've done all the tests, and I've gone in, and all that kind of deal, and that was embarrassing, but I don't know what's going on. And God says, I'm going to make your wife pregnant. And Abraham says, God, my wife is lovely, but she's old, man. She's old. And I don't, I'm not an OBGYN doc, but... I don't think that women can get pregnant when they're 90. 
And so God says, I'm going to make your wife pregnant. And the, and the cool thing about it is that uh, God sends an angel to tell Sarah. And what's Sarah do? She laughs, right? And it isn't like a giggle laugh. Like, oh, that's so nice. It's like a, like a ridiculous laugh. Like, you must be crazy. And so God says, here's the deal. When you get pregnant, you're going to name that baby laughter. So that you remember the time that you didn't think I could and that I proved you wrong. Okay? And so... God comes to Abraham and Sarah, and he promises that they're going to get pregnant. And Sarah gets pregnant, and they give birth to baby Isaac. Now listen to me. (laughs) Uh, My wife and I had a hard time getting pregnant before we had Noah. We lost two babies before we had Noah, and by God's grace, we will see them when the kingdom comes. But I'll tell you this. that's That's a devastating period of time. And Noah was deeply prayed for, and we were deeply grateful when God saw fit to give him to us. Okay? And, and there was a, a, an element of love that was added to just the, the general motherly and fatherly love in that we felt like he was an answer to prayer. Okay? So, Genesis 22 comes along. And... Abraham has not been able to have kids, and then God miraculously answers prayer and gives laughter to him and to Sarah. And you got to know that Abraham loves this boy. you got to know that, that, that Isaac is beyond the apple of his eye, right? That, like, he, he is deeply, deeply, madly in love with his kid. And God comes to him, and he says, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. That mountain over there, I want you to worship me. I want you to go up and I want you to build an altar. And I want you to, in worship, put your son on that altar. And I want you to offer him to me. Now listen. I've tried over the last handful of years to teach you to not read the Bible just as words on a page. Abraham did not initially respond gleefully to this request. I will bet you my mortgage that Abraham was ticked, and I would use the P word, but we're sitting in church, right? You have to imagine that Abraham is like, what? And that God in his grace repeated himself, look, I heard you. I left my father's house to follow you. And then you didn't do what you said you were going to do for lots and lots of years. And then, yeah, you miraculously impregnated my wife, and, and that's cool, but, but you can't take him from me now. Like, you waited too long to give him to me to begin with. And that's not even lending to, if I kill my son, then your promise can't come true. Like, what the... What are you talking about? You want me to take him up the mountain and out of worship, sacrifice? I won't. I won't do it. You have led me to this place and you gave him to me and you have no right to ask me to give him to you. And I'll bet you that Abraham stormed off and went in his tent. And I bet, can you imagine him telling Sarah? God just told me to take our boy, up that mountain. And I bet you Sarah lost it. 
I bet that that laughter turned into absolute rage. I mean, what kind of God asks this? And I bet you a couple days went by and, and Abraham is trying to wrap his head around it. And I bet there were times where he tore his office up. And I bet you there were times where he wept. And I bet you there were times where he had to hop in his car and just drive around, right? I bet you he got a couple tickets. Right? I bet he went to the bar, turned on the TV, just trying to get his mind on I mean, he's wrestling with God at this point. And then there comes this point at which Abraham's sitting in his favorite chair, and he goes, I don't, I'm, I'm incredibly angry that you would ask me to do this, God. It's not fair, it's not right, it's not just. This is my boy. And I'm, I'm furious with you that you would ask me to do this. However, you were faithful when I left my dad's house. You've come through on the other things that you said, even though I felt like it took a little too long. And if you want me to do this, I'll do it. And what is, what is the scripture saying in Hebrews chapter 11? That he believed that God would do what? Raise him from the dead. Okay, now, that's all good and well. I believe that God will raise him from the dead. But first, you've got to kill him. And so Abraham walks his boy to the car, puts all the stuff in the back of the station wagon. They hop in the car. Isaac puts on the favorite radio station. And Abe says, you know what, buddy? <laughs> Let's just not do that right now. And can you imagine the conversation? Can you imagine the conversation as Isaac's just real whimsical and, hey, dad, did you see the game the other day? And Isaac's trying to, uh, you know, just have a regular conversation. Abraham's trying to fill the moment with significance, right? And, and they're talking and Isaac's kind of looking around and goes, hey, hey, dad, like, I know that you love God and I know that you worship God and all that kind of thing. But uh, normally when we go and worship God and you're going to build an altar, you bring a lamb and you didn't. So, so where's the lamb? Again, <laughs> don't read the Bible, just words on the page. And Abraham looks at his promised, his only begotten son. And he says, Bubba, God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide for himself a lamb. And Isaac has watched his daddy trust God. And so he says, okay. And they get up onto that mountain and Abraham starts carrying the stones over and he's building the altar and he's putting the wood on it. And then he, <laughs> he goes over and he gets his boy. Come on, bud. And he sets his boy up on the altar. Dad, what are you doing? And he pushes his boy down. Listen, in order to sacrifice something, you have to bind it. So he ties his boy's legs. Daddy, what, what are you doing? Ties his hands. Daddy, what? Listen, Isaac's not just laying there. Isaac's freaking out. And Abraham reaches into his back pocket and he pulls out a knife and he raises it. Tears going down his face. And right as he about to come down, God says, stop! And I'll bet you my mortgage that Abraham fell on the ground and wept like a baby. And God says, now I know that you'll give me everything. 
Now, <laughs> if you just read that story and you don't know who you're looking for, you're going to get yourself lost really quick, aren't you? Yeah. You're going to walk into that hall of faith and you're going to go, that ain't me. And I'll be totally straight with you. There's no way I'm walking any of my kids up a mountain and doing that. I would want to. I love God with everything that I know. I ain't doing it. One of my deepest fears is that God would require that of me. And I don't think I could. And so when I read that story, there's nothing in it that I go, wow. There's a lot in it that I go, that's the most terrifying story that I've ever read. Why would God ask this man who had loved him, who had trusted him, who had left everything to walk his only boy up a mountain and sacrifice him and call it worship? Why would he do that? This is an absurd story, if you miss the point. There comes a point uh, in heaven where a plan has been hatched and where the father looks at the son, whose name is Jesus, and says, Bubba, <laughs> it's time to go. And Jesus stands up from the throne at which he has been rightfully worshipped for all eternity. And he walks to the edge of heaven as it were. And he steps out. And as he steps out, he is clothed in human flesh. When Jesus stands up from that throne and becomes a man to come to earth, he is not promised that those who hate Jesus, God will be against he is not promised that he will be blessed. He is not promised that all will be well. Jesus leaves the heavenly estate. And in order for us to really understand that, we have to kind of think about the opposite of, of heaven, which is, which is hell. Yeah. And so let's just think about this for one second. Um, hell is the chosen location where God is absent. And everything that God is and everything that God brings is non-existent in hell. And so if we believe the Bible when it says that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, then anything good, anything enjoyable, anything perfect, anything kind, anything remotely in the general vicinity of, of niceness is absent in hell. The way the Bible talks about it was through a concept of basically a junkyard that was always on fire. And it was this idea that in the absence of the goodness of God, there is a torment that is oppressive. And it's like finding yourself sitting in a furnace for all eternity. Now, I don't know if hell is actually a fiery place, but I think it feels like it. Does that make sense to you? Heaven, then, is exclusively the goodness of God. It is the entire absence of anything not kind, not loving, not enjoyable. It, it, it's, you don't get to the end of the week in heaven and go, how did my week go? It went great. You're in heaven. It's, it is the totality 
of fantasticness because only God is present. And Jesus steps out of that to come here. The Bible says that even though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. When Jesus is talking about uh, his economic status, it says that foxes have holes, but Jesus doesn't have, a, the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. So Jesus leaves heaven, which is the totality of goodness, the exclusive uh, existence of the goodness of God, he leaves it to become homeless and insignificant and impoverished and dismissed here. And the Bible says that he came unto his own. So he doesn't just leave heaven to come here, but he comes from heaven and he comes to his own. He comes to his people. He comes to those that are supposed to provide a home for him. And the Bible says that he came into his own and his own received him not. In other words, it's like showing up to a family reunion. Everybody in the family going, get out of here, man. We don't. Normally, we're the ones who are like, I don't want to be here. This is like the family saying, you're not, well, you're out. You're not one of us. We don't want you. We don't love you. We never have. You're useless to us. Get out of here. So Jesus comes and he's homeless. Jesus comes and he's rejected. Listen, Jesus' very best friends betrayed him. The people that he loved the most, the people that he trusted the most, the people that he invested in the most betrayed him. Listen, Jesus leaves his place called home and he comes here to live a horrific life. In Isaiah chapter 52, verses 2 and 3. Keith, can you put that up there for me, man? It actually gives us a description. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 2 and 3. You got that back there? Oh, he's not back there. I'll get it. Isaiah 52, verses 2 and 3. Listen to it. Um, it says of Jesus that he was despised and rejected by men. Actually, you know what? Let's go to verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Okay, so I want you to think about this. Jesus who is clothed in glory in heaven, who is worshipped entirely in heaven, who is surrounded by love and joy and goodness in heaven. The Bible says that he comes and he grows up before us and there's nothing about him that would give, you would give him a second look. Right? Completely insignificant. Not, not good looking, not you know, off the charts in any way, shape, or form. God! Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. Here's, the, here's the, the, the title that I want you to get. He was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. Abraham leaves his father's house, and God says, here's the deal, bub. If you'll obey me, I'll bless you. Jesus leaves his father's house to become a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected by men. Right, And um, Jesus uh, uh, does so as the beginning. What if, what if Jesus had turned to the Father and just said, you know, I've been thinking about this. Um, 
I can't do it, man. I can't do it. I mean, this is too good. This is too awesome. I think I'm just going to stay. There's something about Abraham's story. They go, yeah, it took faith, but God promised it was going to be awesome. Jesus, in obedience to the Father, steps out, and God promised him it was going to be terrible. And yet he went. Right? Why, why don't we worship Abraham for what he did? Because Jesus is our true and better. Yes, there's an element to faith for Abraham, but a promise of blessing. Jesus, is, there's a promise of suffering. There's a promise of pain. There's a promise of loss. There's a promise of betrayal. A man of sorrows. And yet he goes. He goes. In, Gen- in Genesis chapter 22, uh, God tests Abraham by putting his son on the altar, right? And that, that uh, statement that Abraham makes to Isaac in the car, as it were, God will provide for himself a lamb, is a prophetic statement, isn't it? Yeah. Whenever John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Not who covers it, who takes away the sin of the world. And so I want you to think about this. Abraham piles up the car, has Isaac carry the wood to build the altar. They go up a hill, and on that hill, the father places his son on the altar and draws the blade back, and God the Father says, Stop! Jesus comes as a man of sorrow, betrayed by his friends, rejected by his people. A cross is put on his back for him to carry up a mountain. When he gets to the top of a mountain, his feet are nailed, his hands are nailed, and he is sacrificed before the Father for the sin of the world. And listen, as the blade of God's justice is drawn back, no one says stop. No one says, whoa, this is crazy. No one says, don't do it, man, now we know. No, Jesus becomes sin and death. Jesus is executed. He is the Lamb of God on that altar, and the Father puts his Son there, and Jesus becomes sin, and Jesus dies on our behalf, right? Why don't we worship Abraham for doing what he did? Because we have a true and better. It's an unbelievable story that Abraham did what he did. But it's a mind-boggling story, life-altering story, when you understand what God the Father did. That no one stopped God the Father. That no one said, now I know God the Father. That God the Father watched as his boy, his only begotten promised son, is killed on the cross. Why? For me and for you. Now, here's the thing that I want you to understand about this. That Genesis chapter 22 story, it's really the last thing that we know about Abraham. Genesis 23, his wife dies and he kind of falls off the map. Okay? And so this, this terrible story, wonderful, terrible story in Genesis 22, really is the last thing we know uh, about Abraham, right? Jesus comes along. And he is placed on the altar, and the blade of sin and death comes down. And 
that's not the last thing we know about him, is it? Nope. It's not the end of the story. It's not, well, good job, Abraham, moving on. That's not the end of the story. Why is Jesus our true and better? One, because he left not for blessing, but for sorrow. He went up the mountain and the blade came down and then three days later. And then three days later. It wasn't the end of the story. Listen, one of the most beautiful, significant things that Jesus has ever done is gone to the cross. But it's not the end of the story and it's not the best part of the story. Right? It's, it's not the best part of the story. It isn't the reason that we worship Jesus and say that he is the hero of the story. The reason is that he went, that he was killed, and that three days later he rose again victorious. Can I please get an amen? amen. Yeah, absolutely. If you read the story of the life of Abraham, you will get things like God will sometimes call you to something that you can't see into the future. God understands transition. God understands fear. God understands grief. God will ask you for things that are ultimately his, and it's important that you give them to him. And all those things are true, but listen, it's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, it's a shadow to point us to that our Savior left his heavenly estate, that our Savior, with wood on his back, went up a mountain voluntarily laid his life down on a cross. The blade of sin and death went into his chest. His life ended, and three days later, he rose again. Why? For the same promise God gave Abraham. A family. A nation. Abraham's was, Abe, if you'll follow me, I'll make a nation, and that nation will be a specific kind of person. Right? Jews. And in order to get to me, you've got to become Jewish. The promise of the cross is that I will make a nation of anyone who's willing to be in it, right? Of anybody who's, that whosoever believes in it, to them will be given eternal life. Listen, Jesus is our true and better because the family that we're a part of called the church is made possible by his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. By his willingness to walk that mountain, by his willingness to lay on that altar, by his willingness to leave that heavenly estate, to create a nation, to create a family called the church, of which you and I partake of by his grace. Right? Yeah. So today we have an opportunity then to do a couple things. We have an opportunity to take communion, to remind ourselves of that moment with that father's heart who sent his son to that cross, of that willing servant of that willing son who went, we remember those things during communion. And we take it as a family. Why? Because that's what was created out of it. That's what was created out of it. Lastly, or secondly, we sing. We sing because we have this opportunity to respond in joy, to respond in goodness, to respond in gladness, to respond in praise to what Jesus has done. We pray. If you're in here today and listen, you need somebody to rescue you. You need somebody to save you. You have questions. You have thoughts. We want to be here for you. So to my left, to your right. And then fourthly, we give. We give. We got boxes in the back. And, and why do we give, guys? Why? Because of what God has given us. Not some realistic, ridiculous standard. Just because God has been good and gracious to us. So why don't you stand with me? <coughs> we'll have the band come up. I'm going to pray, and, um, and then 
You can come up and take communion. Sing along if you'd like prayer. And then if you have come prepared to give, you can go ahead and do that. Let me pray. God, I thank you for uh, the story of Abraham. God, I, I admit that I'm... I'm, uh, I'm con- convicted by his faith. I'm convicted by his belief in you. Um, I'm challenged by it. I'm, I'm a bit tormented by it, to be honest. I don't, I don't know that I could do that. But God, when I, when I understand that it just gives me some insight into your heart, that you did do that, that you chose to do that, that it wasn't asked of you, that it wasn't put upon you, that you chose to send your son up a mountain to be sacrificed for the sin of the world. Your, your boy, your only begotten, your promised son. God, I, I don't know why you would do that for me. God, I know that that choice has changed me and so many people in this room. That choice Shows us who you are. Shows us that you're good. Shows us that you're trustworthy. Shows us that you're greater than. You're our true and better. God, we thank you. doesn't even begin to say it. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for who you are. God, would you draw us near to the cross. Draw us near to your heart. Show us who you are, God. Would you change us by it so you could be glorified and so that we could have the joy that you've ordained for us. God, thank you for the God that you are, for your love for us, for every single person in this room. We love you today, and we pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.